What's up, everybody? This episode of The Greatest Show on Dirt is brought to you by Hood Hat. Hoodhat.com on Instagram, Hood Hat USA. Listen, these are the hats that I've been wearing for a while now. My buddy Max, he makes the hat. So he's got a factory in New York where he makes the hats. They're 100% merino wool, super nostalgic. And their motto is never leave it behind because the reason why he started the hat company was because when he was a kid, he got this really cool wool Montreal Expos hat. Shout out to the 94 Expos, one of the best teams ever. And, you know, he started a company that reminded him of that first hat he got. And what he does is he creates these hats that instead of just having like the team name on them, they have, you know, sort of a deeper nostalgic design to him. So, for example, the Cincinnati Reds hat says uh, Cincinnati Riverfront on it in like the script cursive writing. So they're so badass. Like he just sent me another uh, Jack Murphy hat that's white and brown that looks so cool because Jack Murphy Stadium is where the Padres play. So that's what's so cool about his hat because a lot of like the nostalgia that we feel around the game of baseball comes from the small things, you know, because the team like the Cincinnati Reds or the Chicago Cubs or the the Pittsburgh Pirates, like, yeah, those team names mean something, but a lot of times it's in the details that really hit home. So he's got a hat for a Pittsburgh Pirates fan that says uh, Three Rivers on it for Three Rivers Stadium. And that's something that's super nostalgic because at Three Rivers, you know, the Pirates won a couple World Series there. And his hats really evoke this sense of nostalgia that takes you back and brings back a lot of memories, which is why his motto is never leave it behind. So check out the hats, uh, hoodhat.com. You can find him on Instagram at hoodhatusa. And yeah, these hats are really just thoughtfully designed with like a nostalgic approach. And, you know, Max is a guy that runs a company. You know, he's sort of one of my buddies now. And, you know, he just does a good job of making these hats, getting them done. And, you know, it's nice to sort of buy from a smaller company and know who you're buying from, you know, versus buying from a bigger company. Because, you know, it's like the smaller companies that are the scrappers, you know. And Max is one of us. You know, he's a super nostalgic guy. You know, he, he builds the hats right at 100% merino wool. And there's a lot of love that goes into the hats. They're super badass. So check them out. And let's, uh, hey, let's get to the show. Let's do it. Hey, what's up, everybody? Greatest show on dirt coming to you live from the Sweet Bee Studios. <laughs> Listen, that's not a good sign that I'm seven seconds into this podcast Woo! and already had to jump back from the mic to take a deep breath because I'm out of breath. Man. Dude, it is so hot outside right now. Listen, I don't know where you live at, but wherever you live at, I hope it's much cooler than what it is where I'm at, right? In, in South Carolina, so I'm just outside of Charlotte, North Carolina, on the South Carolina side, and it's somewhere between Satan's armpit and Satan's butt crack temperature-wise. <laughs> like, it's a solid 100-plus, and then whatever the heat index is, and then today it's raining outside too, so it's just extra sticky and muggy. I'm not sure how I ever made it as a child being outside all day, right? I talk about, you know, a lot of nostalgia on the podcast and being a kid. And you remember when we were kids, we just stayed outside all day long, drinking hose water, eating Star Crunch, just coming in when we had to. We would only come inside when our parents made us. And otherwise, we were just outside all day. It didn't matter how hot it was. Didn't matter if it was raining. It's like, I don't get it because right now, like when I go outside, like I feel like I'm going to pass out. Like I'm this close to ordering one of those life alerts, you know, the C Everett Coop life alert. Like I've fallen and I can't get up. 
because that's where I'm at when I go outside. It's just so hot. And I almost just, you know, I'm going to start going to church because it's so hot outside because it's hot as hell. It has to literally be as hot as hell. Like if hell's any hotter than what it is now, like I got to get right with the Lord because I just can't handle it anymore, you know. But then, you know, in a certain sense, like I do enjoy the heat, you know, my... um. My daughter and I, we were outside the past couple days. We've been going outside like in the evening after supper at like 6 o'clock, 6.30, you know, before bedtime because she'll crash out at 8 o'clock. And it really is like when it cools off in the evening, like it's a blast to get outside and just let her run around the fields. You know, she'll run up and down the sidewalk and stuff. And it's still a little nerve wracking because I feel she's going to fall on her face. But she's just growing up so fast. And it's like she can do everything now. It's a little alarming. And she also... I've got it on video. She said, oh, shit, and that's a bit of a problem. You know, she's a solid 16 months old right now. When they say a kid is a sponge, they are not fucking joking because she is in the video. I would let you listen to it. I don't have my phone on me right now. She was like, oh, shit. Here it is. Hold on. Here, I bet I can find it for you and play it through here. It's a little alarming. I'm a little scared. You know, I think. That sort of just doubles down on the reason why I need to start going to church because my kid's already cussing. Let me see if I can get this for you. Emmy. Oh, it fell off. Hold on, it's coming up. I think there's a little bit of an aw shit in there. Like, you, you tell me. Like, I think there's an oh shit in there. And it's, oh God, man. I mean, it's, I got to really, really clean up with how I live. Like about earlier in the week, I made her some lunch right after her nap. And I made her some macaroni and cheese. And I don't remember what I was eating. I think I was eating like a peanut butter and jelly or something. And we were in the kitchen. And routinely, if I make myself a meal, I won't even make it to the table or the couch. I'll just hover over the sink like a rat and just eat my food. And so I make my sandwich and her mac and cheese is done. And I just give her a spoon and I give her the pot of macaroni and cheese. And she's just spooning macaroni and cheese out of the pot that I cooked it in while I'm hovered over the sink eating a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And I'm creating a monster at this point. She's so much like me. It's a little alarming. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. You know, because I routinely pee in the front yard and eat over the sink and stuff like that. But I think I'm a, I'm a fairly fun guy. You know, I may drink a little too much. I may cuss a little too much. But otherwise, like, my moral compass is pretty solid. I'll smoke the occasional cigarette just for nostalgic purposes, just because I want to think of the S10. But otherwise, it's, you know, I, I, I'm all right. So if the worst thing she does is say, oh, shit and eats her macaroni and cheese straight out of the pot that I cooked it in, I don't think that's the worst thing a kid could be, you know, now when she goes to school, which, Jesus, man, feels like it might be tomorrow because she's growing up so fast. I just hope she doesn't, you know, say shit in front of the teacher or something like that because they're going to call me, right? This is what it would look like. The teacher would call me and say, hey, Mr. McCree. I'd be like, you can call me Q-Dog. She'd be like, all right, Mr. Q-Dog, your daughter, Emmy, we were playing kickball in PE today. I said, okay, kickball. She's pretty good at it. She's got a good leg. I've seen her. She's a hell of an athlete, actually. 
And I mean, yeah, hundred percent. She'll be the first. My daughter, I think, will be the first woman pitcher in Major League Baseball. Phil Necro said that he believes a woman will pitch in baseball because they're really good at pitching off-speed stuff. She doesn't have to live by the fastball, and plus she's a lefty. I digress. So the teacher's going to look at me and say, well, we were playing kickball, and Emmy hit a line drive kick, you know, exit velocity extremely high, and some idiot, you know, had a dumb luck, caught the ball, and Emmy goes, oh, shit. And if when the teacher tells me that, I'm going to laugh hysterically, you know, but the teacher's going to be judging me like, do I need to call child and family services? Like, what kind of parent is this? It's, you know, proud of their kid cussing. So the teacher's going to call me and say, yeah, Emmy said, oh, shit. And I'm going to laugh and be like, no way. She really said, oh, shit. How hard did she kick the ball? Right. And then he's just going to be like, Mr. McCree, this is a serious deal. Your, your, your five-year-old daughter, she cussed. And I'll be like, yeah, oh, yeah, you know, you're 100%, right? I'll definitely have a talk with her. Because that's sort of, that's one of my downfalls of being a parent. It's like when my kid does stuff that she's not supposed to do, I laugh at it a lot. You know, she's in a phase now where if she eats her food, right, she sits in a high chair. If she's not hovered over the sink in the kitchen like me eating mac and cheese, Jesus Christ, and she will be in the high chair, right? And when she's eating food, she eats it, right? And then when she's done eating her food, she launches her food. And I've told you this before, but she's getting a stronger arm. She threw a strawberry all the way to the blinds and it stuck straight to it because she threw it so hard. And when she does that, I just start laughing. But we're like, I know that maybe I'm creating a monster, but I just want to create a fun kid. And also it's sort of just funny, you know? And if indeed my daughter said, oh shit, in the video I just played, like, you know, I think it's funny. And, but I come from a little bit of, you know, a lot of us do come from a different, you know, a different time. You know, we didn't have car seats. I remember multiple times my mom would take us to McDonald's running errands and stuff like that. And, you know, me and my sister, we'd just be playing in the floorboard. Like I don't, I didn't start wearing a seatbelt till I was like 21 years old. And that was because the state of Illinois said it was a law and they could give, give you a, they could write you a ticket if they saw you without your seatbelt. Because how it always used to be with a seatbelt law, at least in Illinois, was if you got pulled over for like speeding and you weren't wearing your seatbelt, they could give you the speeding ticket and the seatbelt ticket. But if they saw you and you weren't wearing your seatbelt, they could not pull you over for just a seatbelt, right? So it was sort of like an a la carte thing. Like when you're in grade school and you want to get a fruit roll up for 35 cents because it doesn't come with the lunch. So, you know, you got to hustle up some quarters out of the washing machine at, at the house, right? Because, you know, dad never cleans out his pockets and you get your money or, you, you know, then you got enough for, you know, maybe a chocolate milk and a fruit roll up. And some cheese on wheat crackers or something. And so that's how it was with the seatbelt. But then when I got a little older, they got to the point in Illinois where they could pull you over for the seatbelt. So that's when I started wearing a seatbelt. Like, we didn't do that shit when we were kids. Like, I didn't wear a seatbelt. You know, we littered. We would finish the McDonald's and just be like, Mom, roll down the window and just shove the bag out of the window. That's a different time, you know. It, it never occurred to me that littering was actually a bad thing until... I was probably like, again, 20 or 21, you know, so that's, um, you know, that's what we did. We were routinely ride in the back of the truck, you know, on the way to ball games on the, I do some of the funnest days were every year in little league, we would have like, there would be a, a town parade and all the little league teams would be in the parade, which would be fun. So we'd get in the back of the truck and, you know, go really slow through town, throw candy out and stuff like that. Eat half the candy, you know, shove about 10 uh, Tootsie Rolls in our mouth so it looked like we had chew and then you could spit the brown out, right? So that was really fun. But 
you would, after that, right, you would have your Saturday day game. You would go through the parade, come back, take team pictures, and then do your game. But since it was the first game, you would always go to Dairy Queen afterwards. You know, you're talking like Dilly Bars, the whole nine. They got little, what, they had little, they had Dilly Bars, and then like they had like a star thing too, I think. But I was a big Dilly Bar guy. Dilly Bar and Chocolate Shake, I like to keep it simple. So after that, we will all get in the back of the truck and like drink our Cokes, you know, because there would be post-game refreshments, you know, Orange Crush, Bargs Root Beer, Mountain Dew, Mellow Yellow, Jolt, Surge, all the good shit. And so we would just be on the highway on the way to Dairy Queen. And, you know, the problem, you don't see anybody now. Like, you don't, I've, I haven't seen people riding in the back of a truck in probably 10 or 15 years. You know, it's just like a caller ID or something, right? You remember when caller IDs came out? Jesus. Those things were badass. I remember mom coming home with the caller ID, and we were so amazed that whoever called, it's like you knew who it was. It was technology like I had never seen before. Like, I remember people calling, and I would just stare at the caller ID, be like, yo, it's my buddy Josh calling. I wouldn't even answer the fucking phone. I would have to call him back because I was in such awe that you could figure out who was calling you. It was crazy, man. But, like, I've never, I don't see anybody that rides in the back of a truck anymore. I don't know, actually, if I've ridden in the back of a truck for a while. But, you know, I do put my daughter in a seatbelt and all those sorts of things. But, you know, when it comes to, if a teacher calls me and it's like, hey, your kid said shit. Okay, if she's suspended, I'll come and get her. And then we'll probably go to McDonald's, get a couple Happy Meals. And then, hey, maybe go to Chuck E. Cheese and jump in the ball pit, right? Like, let's make a day out of it, right? My mom used to do that when we were kids. She would give us skip days a few times a year. And they were so badass. Because you had the freedom, like everybody was in school, and you were like the kid that got to stay at home, right? I remember staying home on skip days, and just like reading Goosebump books all days, playing RBI baseball, going outside and throwing tennis balls up in the air, and hitting them over the neighbor's house, because I couldn't go to the sandlot, because the sandlot was right by the school, so they would see me. But I always sort of felt like a rebel, like when I had a skip day, like if you, the coolest things being a kid were like if you got to stay home from school and you weren't really sick. You know, like sometimes I would tell mom, like, yo, I got a stomachache, but like I would secretly feel good. And like that was pretty good. But when your parents would just say like, hey, do you want to stay home today and have a skip day? Like that was the ultimate freedom. That and then being in front of the TV when you were a kid waiting on the snow day, right? Like watching like the fucking MLB draft or something that's scrolling across the bottom. And you want to see who your team picked? Like, it was like that with the snow days, you know, where you're all the schools are scrolling to the bottom. And then when you see your school, it's like those old publishers clearinghouse commercials where someone knocks on your door and they're like, you've won a million dollars and you're losing your mind. Like, in the kid world, it was like Christmas Eve night. So we wake up at 4 a.m., 5 a.m. and just start looking at the school closings. And when you would see it, it would just be pure joy. But then... When you didn't see it, it was like getting your heart ripped out where, you know, the team, your team didn't draft the person you wanted to get drafted. So when there was snow outside and you had to go to school, like just kick me in the nuts now. I don't want to go to school. But then recess was always a good thing because, you know, you would get to go outside and, you know, we would play like two-hand touch football in grade school and like playing that in the snow was always awesome. Like I remember just you go outside and like my big starter jacket. I think when I was in grade school, I had the Minnesota Vikings starter jacket. It was like purple and yellow. It was so badass. And going outside and playing football in the snow at recess, like that was a good time though. So it wasn't always bad. 
But, I mean, don't even get me started on that. Like, those school recess in grade school and going outside and playing sports, like, dude, so badass. Like, we will play a lot of kickball, a lot of basketball on the blacktop. Like, the blacktop, dude, the blacktop is where it happened. Like, our blacktop had a full-court basketball goal. And then next to that, there were two four-square um courts like it's like four square you ever play four square right you wouldn't call it a four square court but like the four square was painted on the ground and that's where you would play four square and we had two designated areas for four square and jesus dude like four square and tetherball were the shit man like i remember many a days in grade school just like we would have in like pe we would or they would last all week in pe we would have like full-on tetherball tournaments like a sweet 16 ncaa tournament of tetherball and i won the tetherball title a few times because i was tall and fast and it was like it's probably the best thing that's ever happened to me was winning the tetherball title in grade school like i i don't know how many times i won it surely i think i was probably a six-time champ sort of like michael jordan and the chicago bulls like Dude, tetherball was legit. And then Foursquare, when, like, you would just, like, pound the ball really hard. And Foursquare, jeez, man, Foursquare. We were getting all out Foursquare wars. And I think Foursquare was like you had to – you hit – in Foursquare, I think you had to hit the ball to the other person, and it had to bounce. But I think sometimes maybe you could hit the ball, and it didn't have to bounce, but they could catch it and get you out. Or maybe that's sort of like – that must be that's sort of like a dodgeball thing. I think I'm wrong on that. I think with four square, the ball had to bounce and you had to get it past the person. And four square, Jesus Christ, man, that shit was riveting. Like I would I think right now I'm gonna paint a four square square outside of my front yard right now and see if I can't start a neighborhood tournament with it. Cause a four square, Jesus, man, that was so legit. And obviously, you know, I want some four square titles too, I think. But dude, I don't know which I like better. Like four square or tetherball. Damn, like tetherball was for sure like a grind because that was just one on one. That was just like Two fifth graders just bashing the shit out of that tetherball. It was sort of like cockfighting, but with kids, right? When you're just in the ring, like, let's go. But then four square, you started with four people, and then it would get down to three, and then get down to two, and then at that point, that was serious. And then on the other side of the four square squares, we had a big round circle for dodgeball, which was always a blast. And then I think after that, on the far end of the blacktop, that's just where you would just run and, like, play tag and stuff like that. And then we had a field next to our blacktop, and then that's where we had, like, next to the field. Well, in that field was a sandlot where we played ball. But we didn't really play baseball in grade school. We would play kickball on that field, which was so badass. And then the two-hand touch football on that field as well. And then we had plenty of basketball tournaments as well, man. Like, playing basketball in PE, like, PE recess, like, I always think sometimes if I could go back in time, I would want to, like, be myself, like, have the strength and the muscle mass and the brain power that I have now, but I would go back and fifth, I would be a fifth grader again, and I would have all, like, my physical abilities, but I would be this, the size that I was in fifth grade, and I would just want to go back and dominate the grade school at basketball, two-hand touch football, dodgeball four square tetherball like really kick the shit out of some little kids at tetherball like that would be the one thing like if you know if people got a hold of a time machine they would be like oh dude I want to go to like 
where the founding fathers wrote the Declaration of Independence, or maybe I want to see Jesus being born, or, you know, Independence Day or something like that. And I'm like, damn, I want to go to the blacktop at Longfellow School in Marion, Illinois. I want to be a fifth grader for a day and just dominate the tetherball tournament. <laughs> and then after that, just fucking throw some rockets at dodgeball and just really take some heads off. Shit, man, did you guys ever play in grade school uh, volley tennis? It was like volleyball, but on a tennis court. So the net wasn't high. The net was low because it was on a tennis court. But you would play volley tennis. And it was like four. It was a, it was sort of like a mix between four square and dodgeball and volleyball and tennis because you could really hit the shit out of that ball. And one time I hit a girl so hard in the face that it broke her glasses and everything. And I sort of felt bad. But, you know, as a trained tetherball player. Like, I only knew one speed, and that was fast, right? And it was just all about power. But volley tennis, Jesus, man. I didn't I didn't expect to go down this uh, rabbit hole that I'm in right now, but <laughs> volley tennis was the shit. All right, let's get to the next segment. If I can catch my breath from all the tetherball talk and foursquare talk and just my general lack of cardio capacity, we'll get this going. Okay. Woo. Okay, next. Listen, here's what we got. The next segment, we're going to talk about Lou Gehrig. Now, I'm very excited to talk about Lou Gehrig. You know, a lot of the players that I talk about on the podcast, they are, you know, players from the 70s, 80s, and 90s, you know, from our era. But Lou Gehrig, you know, I've never thought to actually talk about a guy like Lou Gehrig before because he almost seems like this mythological person to me, right? Like, Lou Gehrig is sort of like Jesus or the Loch Ness Monster, or aliens, you know? Like, you hear about him, and it's like, are they real? You know, well, Luke Gehrig is definitely real. And on June 2nd, MLB did their first annual Luke Gehrig Day, and that was to recognize the life and career of Luke Gehrig, but also to, you know, bring awareness to ALS. And I believe it did both of those things, because here we are right now, and we're going to talk about Luke Gehrig. And the what I want to get to is in 1938, Lou Gehrig played the whole entire season with ALS. It started, his ALS symptoms started, it's widely believed that it that those symptoms started in spring of 1938, and it could have even been before because he filmed a movie, he filmed a movie called Rawhide. It must have been like at the end of 37 when he finished up, and it was a cowboy movie, so Lou Gehrig films a cowboy movie called Rawhide, which you have me at the title Rawhide, like that, if I have ever have a son, I want to name him Rawhide, <laughs> Rawhide McCree, yeah, and he, so the, the, basically, the, the gist of the movie is he's, he's Lou Gehrig, he plays himself, because when you're Lou Gehrig, you play yourself, man, you know, because you're just that cool, and the, he, the synopsis or whatever you call it is, it, he retires from baseball and just wants to get, um, you know, herding some cattle. You know, he just wants to have a farm and get out of baseball. But then, you know, some stuff happens. Some outlaws come through town and he's really got to battle it out with him. You know, it's sort of got a wider feel to him, right? And Rawhide, you know, I've, I've never watched it, but it sounds like it's a phenomenal movie. But what I'm getting at with Rawhide is a lot of the people that are familiar with the filming of Rawhide said that they had noticed Lou Gehrig sort of stumbling during the making of that movie where it seems like his symptoms may have started, you know, a little more well before spring training in 1938. And the reason why I'm bringing that up is because we're going to explore 
him. We're going to talk about Lou Gehrig playing the 1938 season with ALS. All right, ALS, it's where the messaging from the brain to the muscles, it stops. It's like when you were a kid and you had um, AOL dial-up internet and you're surfing the internet about to, I don't know, buy a skateboard or something, or you're playing, you're, you're chatting, you know, with a girl that you like on AOL Instant Messenger, and your, your little shit-ass sister picks up the phone and you get disconnected, right? That's what ALS is. Um, you know, the brain is the landline, and the muscles are the internet, and someone is intercepting the signal from the brain to the body, so the muscles, the voluntary movement is shut down, right? So, the muscles can't move, you know, you're talking any sort of movement, chewing, speaking, even breathing can happen, right? A lot of people that die from ALS, it's because of respiratory failure. The whole body shuts down. So in 1938, Luke Gehrig is playing with a disease that is shutting down his body. And somehow the man bats 295 with 29 home runs, 114 RBIs, and is the first baseman for the World Series champion, New York Yankees. This could possibly be the most impressive season. I would say it has to be the most impressive season ever. Like, you can put it up to all of Barry Bonds' great seasons, Ricky Henderson's great seasons, Ted Williams, Babe Ruth, stack them up. But the man was an extremely hard worker, and that is why I want to dig into this 38 season because I value hard work more than anything. If you've listened to the podcast, you hear me talk about my parents enough, how they busted their ass, how my dad busted his ass, how my mom, you know, she was a hairdresser. She had a shop attached to the house where she would perm hair, you know, because this was the 80s and 90s. And, you know, she always put food on the table, you know, so she's working full time and raising three kids. And my dad's working six, seven days a week. Hard work. I admire it, and I do my best to work harder and harder every day, and that is the type of person that Lou Gehrig was, right? So he was a first-generation um, person in America, right? So his uh, his family, they were German immigrants, so he was the first one born here, and his old man was a sheet metal worker, real hard-ass dude, but he was, a, he was a serious alcoholic, so he had a hard time holding a job. So the role model in Lou's house was his mom. His mom was a maid. And she was the main breadwinner, right? And she worked her ass off big time. And Lou would even help his mom work. He had a few other siblings as well. Two of them, I think, passed away at a very young age. So Lou had seen a lot. But also what was ingrained in uh, Lou Gehrig more than anything was hard work. And like I said, I admire that more than anything. But also to hear... You know, his mom being the made breadwinner for the whole family when the dad couldn't be counted on. There's a lot of self-sacrifice there as well. And I think Lou saw that self-sacrifice. And I also like self-sacrifice to me is the most valuable thing a human being can do for another human being. That's how I feel. You know, like I could loan you a hundred dollars, right? I won't do it because I don't have it, right? This is a pro bono podcast. But if I, I give you a hundred dollars, you can give it back to me. If I give you my time, like my parents did, or like I do my best with my wife and my daughter to give them my time, I'm not getting it back, and I don't want it back. And that's where I think self-sacrifice really comes into play. So when you look at a guy like Lou Gehrig and his his game streak of over 2,100 games, he did that out of pure self-sacrifice. It wasn't because he wanted to show off and hit a bunch of home runs, and get his name in the paper. He didn't care about any of that. Even when he gave his luckiest man on earth speech, that was sort of a reluctant thing. He gave it 
Um, I don't know if he was necessarily pressed into it, but he knew he had to because the public wanted answers. But it just wasn't in his nature to do that. And likewise, with the game streak, you know, his wife would ask him sometimes, like, are you just going to play forever? Like, when is it going to end? And Lou was sort of the guy that was like, listen, my team needs me. Um, I, I'm a good ball player, and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to strap on my work boots, and I'm going to get to it. And that's the guy that Lou Gehrig was, and that's what I admire so much in real life, which is why I'm having so much fun talking about him right now, right? So the 1938 season's underway. Now, here's what we know about his 1938 season, and I got a lot of this info off an article on MLB.com, which was real awesome. And so the 1938 season starts. He gets into spring training and stuffs off a little bit. You know, he's squaring up the ball well, but it's not going. You know, it doesn't have the proper zoom is what he said. And he's like, man, I don't know what's going on. You know, Lute was confused. You know, he would run the bases and his coordination would be off. He would stumble around the bases. The palms of his hands, they were blistered and bruised because he was gripping the bat so tight because he was trying so hard, you know, and he was even having to sit out some games that they would play in spring training because like they would, they would have their spring training games, but they would also have like these extra tune-up games. And he was having to sit him out because he was like, I don't know what's going on. Like he just kept saying his legs were tired and the ball wasn't moving when he hit it, you know? And, you know, so he gets into the the 1938 season, and gets off to a really slow start. Things just aren't clicking for him. And writers, they're writing in the newspaper that they think it's time for Lou Gehrig to take a day off. They don't know what's wrong with him because the streak at that point was really held under a microscope because, you know, like I said, a lot of folks were saying, hey, Lou, it's probably time to take a break now. But the man didn't do it because, like I said, he was a hard worker. You know, there was one game in 38 where he hurt his lower back. And he hurt his lower back so bad, they had to put him in a plaster cast, right? They had to put a pla- like a body cast on his back because he hurt it so bad. He played the next game. Holy shit. Like, you, you could not stop him from playing. And then what's interesting, too, is... He had a 25-game stretch in August where he just hit the leather off the ball. Ton of home runs. He was batting 352 because previously his batting average was 267. Now, this is a guy that batted like 330 or 340 the season before. He batted 360 within the last five seasons, you know. And But in August, this 25-game stretch, he just goes on a heater. And it was August, right? So the weather was a little warmer. And a lot of ALS researchers, they say, you know, ALS patients, they don't like the cold weather. But when the weather gets warm, they sort of thrive. While at the same time, about, I think it was one in seven ALS patients, they have a temporary reversal of symptoms because there are like surviving motor neurons that kick stuff back into gear. And that's what was happening to Lou Gehrig. He had this temporary reversal And then had this 25-game streak in August where it was warm, his symptoms let up a little bit, and he was back to this slugging home run hitter. Because after the 25-game streak and before the 25-game streak, he was just a singles hitter because his power was zapped. But he ends the season in total batting 295 with a 410 on-base percentage, 29 homers, 114 RBIs, okay? He had 689 plate attempts. All with ALS. He only struck out 75 times. Now, I want to be careful because I'm not, 
making light of any of this. I'm not trying to say that, oh, he did this with ALS. Like, that's what's up. You know, that's, that's not what I'm trying to do, right? I really just want to recognize the hard work and determination of Lou Gehrig. And so I should probably slow down a little bit as I say this stuff because with Lou Gehrig playing baseball with ALS, to me, it's not really about the numbers. It's cool that he struck out only 75 times while having ALS. But I think the thing to recognize more than anything is just his ability to work hard and keep trying. You know, the whole season, like he he batted 351 in 1937. So in 38, like his batting average was down nearly 60 points, slugging down six, or on base down 60 points, slugging down like 130 points. That would be hard for somebody to deal with. And, you know, I, I mean, if that was me, I would probably like give up. I would probably, you know, drink like a hundred hams. Like I'm not too sure how I or a normal human being would deal with that. But the thing here is Lou Gehrig was not a normal human being. And that's why, like, I'm so glad that MLB had this day because, you know, we're talking about this right now and otherwise probably wouldn't have. And you know, there are a lot of players that I talk about on repeat on this podcast. You know, you got your Dick Allens, your Dave Parkers, and, you know, guys like that. It, but, like, Luke Gehrig is right up there with the best of the best. This is not just a guy that was a myth, like an alien or the Loch Ness Monster, right? This is a real-life dude that happened who was incredibly strong. And when I read his story and I look at that 1938 stat line on baseball reference and see a full season of 157 games played 410 on base only 75 strikeouts like this is just unbelievable what he did with ALS it's so crazy um but he was he was always just that good of an athlete and I think it was because you know he he came from a line of hard workers he was a great athlete he was a fullback in high school you know, one time in high school when he was 17, so he he's, he lived in New York, so he always played baseball in New York, and he traveled, him and his team, they traveled to Chicago to Wrigley Field because they were going to play a another high school team that was in Chicago, so they play in Wrigley Field, and like the seventh inning, Luke Garrett comes up to bat and hits a grand slam out of Wrigley Field. Now, it's not crazy to see somebody hit a home run out of Wrigley Field. You've seen Dave Kingman's home run, right? Dave Kingman was a good power hitter, but Dave Kingman was no Lou Gehrig. Right? Lou Gehrig did this at the age of 17 years old, right? So he was an amazing athlete, but that, and so I'll say that because everybody knows that Lou Gehrig was an amazing athlete, right? He's a baseball legend. He's such a legend. We don't think he's real, but the hardworking aspect of that is something to be talked about, you know, and I, I don't, at least I think with people my age, because I was born in 83, so I'm 37, I mean, I, I know I've, I've never thought about this nearly enough, and it's motivating to see his stat line from that year, you know, to see how he was brought up, and to see how he handled the 1938 season, you know, he didn't quit, and he always tried his hardest. And I think that's so important. You know, I think that's a lot of self-sacrifice, you know. A lot of guys in that time, like when we think about our parents or, you know, look at Lou Gehrig and, you know, understand his story, you know, that was a self-sacrifice. Then people didn't quit 
back in those days. They just didn't because it wasn't the right thing to do. And those are the values that, you know, I want to try to work with every day is just not to quit. You know, if my daughter needs me, I don't want to quit. If my wife needs me, I don't want to quit. Like, I just don't. And I think there's so much value in not quitting. And Lou Gehrig just didn't quit until he absolutely had to. So he comes in in 1938. The man is back at it again. But he only played eight games. Now, this next part is really telling of who Lou Gehrig was as a human being. Lou Gehrig finally quit playing baseball. He finally ended the streak when he physically could not hit a baseball out of the infield. That is how long he played with ALS and how far advanced it was until he said, I can't do it anymore. He got to the point, he continued to play until he literally could not hit the ball out of the infield. And that I admire, right? It reminds me of like Nolan Ryan. He pitched until his arm fell off. Literally, Nolan Ryan pitched until he tore his UCL and had to have Tommy John surgery. He gave it everything he had. My old man worked construction his whole life and had rheumatoid arthritis, had to have two knees and two had to have two knees and a hip replaced by the time he was like 43 years old. My dad gave everything he had physically for us growing up. And Lou Gehrig gave everything he could to the game of baseball till he could not. This man hit 47 home runs and 173 RBIs in his MVP season. He did it until he could not do it anymore. I can't imagine how uncomfortable that would be and how every morning he probably had to wake up in just pure pain and agony and just like, why are these things not happening? Like, I don't think... Lou Gehrig disease, Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS. I don't think it's a painful disease, like physically, but it, you know, it must. I can only imagine that, you know, how painful it must be to, you know, see your body betray you because mentally you stay just as sharp as ever, but physically, like you just waste away, you know. So I think that's all I have to say about Lou Gehrig. If you give me a second, I'm gonna look in my notebook because if I have anything else. You know, I don't want to forget it, but those were the main points that I think I had. But just, I mean, a hell of a guy. You know, he even went as far as to altering his batting stance. He was ordering lighter bats, which is something to be said because you know how players are. You know, they are, baseball players are creatures of habit, but he just continued to try no matter what. In the 1938 World Series, he went four for 14, and I think it was four singles is what he hit. Um, The 75 strikeouts and 689 attempts. Um, 689 plate attempts, that is. But otherwise, like I think that's really all I have. And, you know, I'd say my main takeaway from this is that Luke Gehrig was a hard worker. And that 1938 season where he played it with ALS, the, the self-sacrifice there, it, it amazes me and it motivates me. And it's something that I think, you know, everybody should sort of talk about more. And, you know, me reading that, you know, it... It does the same thing, you know, when I think about my parents, you know, sacrificing whatever they had for me. You know, I look at a guy like Luke Gehrig and I'm like, man, that's it. That's why I love baseball. And there's so many good stories within the game of baseball. And if we just take the time to, you know, recognize the stories of guys like Luke Gehrig and, you know, it, it allows us to find so much within the game still yet every single day. You know, it's it's cliche to talk about baseball 
and say that, hey, it's been played for well over 100 years, and you'll always still see something new. Well, the beautiful thing about it is to see something new, you don't necessarily have to have something new. And I think it's important to take the time to discover a lot of you know older players like Lou Gehrig and find out what they stood for. And I think it can motivate us all just to be harder workers and better people for sure. All right, guys, our next segment is a few baseball stories that I've got. Okay, I'm reading a book called Men at Work by George Will. George Will is a phenomenal author. He was one of the guys that Ken Burns interviewed throughout his baseball documentary. Phenomenal documentary, and George Will was a good interview. So I found this book, and I said, well, I got to read it. And what George Will does in this book is he follows four people in Major League Baseball throughout the season. It takes place in the early 90s. Okay, I don't know exactly what the year is. I think it's approximately 91 or 92. So he follows four people in baseball. He follows a manager, which is Tony La Russa, a hitter, which is Tony Gwynn, a pitcher, which is Oral Hershiser, and a fielder, which is Cal Ripken Jr. So he 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 builds an intimate, close relationship with all four of these people throughout the season. We'll, we'll say it's 1992 for now, but I could be wrong. And he gets a lot of inside scoop on what's going on. And the first section of the book, is he's following Tony La Russa around, you know, really getting into how Tony game plans, how he works with Dave Duncan, which is his pitching coach, how he works with his players. So the two stories I'm going to cover involve, one of them involves Ricky Henderson, and one in, involves... Tony La Russa is sort of his managing style in the retaliating and pitching, hitting batters and pitching inside to batters. OK, now I felt that's what we're going to cover first. And this is pitching inside to batters and retaliating when one of your batters gets it. OK, and the reason why this is so interesting to me is because in baseball right now, right, the era I'm still out of breath. <laughs> I get so excited. The era that we're in in Major League Baseball, right, a lot of the unwritten rules are getting shit on. And, you know, rightly so sometimes, right? Like if a player, if a Major League Baseball player, if Fernando Tatis wants to hit an absolute bomb of a Grand Slam with his 34-32 Victus and flip his bat, listen, let the man do it. I'm okay with that. I think with competition, if you're really going to play with intensity, those things are going to happen. And if you hit a Grand Slam and you want to flip that bat, listen, Fernando Tatis is so cool. He's always sporting some bomb-ass Oakleys. He's got like the the sweet Padres jersey on. Like he just looks cool. He's like if James Dean were a baseball player, he would be Fernando Tatis Jr. He's so cool. And plus, like Tatis has the hair, like the flow. It's Bryce Harper used to have the best hair in baseball. Fernando Tatis does now. He's got the hair, the shades, the Padres uni, the bat flip. Nobody looks cooler right now hitting a home run than what Fernando Tatis does. But you know, like when a couple years ago, when uh, Tim Anderson flipped his bat, Brad Keller threw at his hip immediately because he was super pissed that he did it. And so it's things like that. And then also retaliation. You hit one of our guys, I hit one of your guys. That's frowned upon, right? That specifically, if, if a pitcher throws at a team slugger and then that other team wants to retaliate, that behavior gets a lot of bad press coverage. Now, there's a section in this book where Tony talks to George Will about his reasoning for retaliating. So in the book, Tony La Russa says that he believes that hitting batter should be proportional, right? If you hit my slugger, Tony La Russa is essentially saying, if you hit Mark McGuire, if you're trying to pitch him inside and you hit him, I'm hitting your slugger. And it's not because 
Tony has an ego and he's like, oh, you hit my guy. Well, fuck you. I'm going to hit your guy. You know, that's not the case with Tony La Russa, right? It's about the pitcher establishing, you know, the inside of the plate, right? So a lot of pitchers, you know, if you're going to succeed in Major League Baseball, you've got to pitch inside. You've got to pitch off the inside of the plate to do so. And to do that, the reasoning to do that is because, I mean, there could be multiple reasons, but I'm not a baseball manager. I'm just reading a book, (laughs) okay? But the reason to do that is you want to pitch a guy inside because if you do that, you sort of instill a little fear in him for one, okay? If you are in the box and there's a pitcher throwing 95 miles an hour, there's a little bit of fear there, especially when he's able to throw inside and command it. So if a pitcher's throwing inside on a hitter, then that hitter is going to be a little less likely to venture out over the plate to hit a ball on the outside part of the plate when, you know, that pitch comes because he knows he's getting hit inside, right? Charlie Lau, one of the greatest hitting coaches, if not the greatest ever, and his uh, his prime prodigy was George Brett. Now, how George Brett would bat and how Charlie Lau wanted all of his hitters to bat because Charlie Lau was the hitting instructor for the Chicago White Sox when Tony La Russa was there. And Charlie Lau would teach the, his hitters to, you know, put their weight on the back leg. And then as that ball came in, sort of shift that weight and lean your body out towards the plate. And so you're leaning up and towards the plate and making, you know, a positive direct motion to the pitcher to shift that weight, shift that power balance, and really put a charge into the ball, okay? So if you're hitting well as a hitter, you've got to get out over the plate because you're going to get pitched inside, you're going to get pitched outside, right? You've got to dominate that outside corner. But what a pitcher is going to do is he's going to say, well, I'm going to pitch you inside because I don't want you getting out over the plate. I want to keep you on your toes. You know, heavy heat, 90-plus mile-an-hour fastballs, that's getting to the dish quicker than a hiccup, right? So a hitter, if a hitter knows he's getting pitched inside, he just can't freely shift his weight out over the plate to put a charge into the ball to the opposite field because if he does that, he risks getting hit. You know, the book talks about if you're a hitter, you cannot be in the box and be afraid to get hit because if that happens, you know, because when you're batting, you don't have time to really decipher, is that ball coming inside? Is it going to hit me or not? I mean, if it's a... 70 low 80s mile an hour breaking ball. I think a lot of players are that good to be able to figure that out. But if you've got a guy throwing 90 plus, you don't have time in the batter's box to say, oh, is this ball going to hit me? Oh, I better not get out over the plate, right? So it's very important to throw inside. And how the book puts it when Tony's talking to George, he says this. Tony is basically like, if I've got a hitter and he's getting pitched inside a lot and he gets hit, okay, I've got to defend defend my slugger, one of my best hitters, and I've got to hit one of their guys because here's what happens. If you've got a pitcher, if Tony LaRusso's Oakland Athletics team is facing a pitcher that's pitching inside and he drills a guy or drills a couple guys, if Tony doesn't retaliate, here's what happens. That pitcher is going to continue to pitch inside. But because Tony doesn't retaliate, the batters from the other team because they know they're not getting retaliated against. They know that their hitters on the other team aren't being protected. They're going to venture out over the plate and they're going to cream some balls because the pitcher for Tony's pitcher isn't coming inside and isn't hitting guys. And the reason why you got to hit the guy because one, it hurts. 
Two, it could cause you to be injured. And three, getting hit's going to get you off the inside of that plate. And it's going to help the pitcher control the outside corner of the plate where you'll get success there, you know. But if you don't allow a pitcher to pitch inside and retaliate, then you're not standing up for your players. This is what Tony's saying. You're not standing up for your players who are getting hit and pitched inside. So the reason for the retaliation is to protect your hitters. So when that happens, the pitcher for the other team, this is what Tony says. So the pitcher pitching against Tony's players if there's been retaliation, then he's going to get a little afraid and he's not going to pitch inside. And even on future matchups, he won't pitch inside as heavy because that pitcher who's facing Tony's team does not want his sluggers to get hit. You can't risk that, right? And so the reason for protecting players isn't just an ego thing. It's a protecting your hitters so they might not see as many inside pitches so they can gain control over more of the plate. So when a lot of the unwritten rules these days are being talked about, they're not taking into account the strategy of it. And that strategy is Tony wants to give his hitters as much control of the plate as possible because that's how you get good hits. And if you can scare the other team's pitcher from pitching inside to you because he's hit a couple of your guys, then you need to absolutely retaliate because he's less likely to do that if a pitcher is because, you know, if you've got an in-division rival, you're playing that team 19 times a year, you know, say the Cubs and the Cardinals, right? And let's say the Cubs got a guy that's pitching the Cardinals inside all damn year and the Cardinals never retaliate, then he's just going to continue to pitch the Cubs pitcher would just continue to pitch Cardinals players inside all damn year because the Cardinals won't retaliate. And then that's a big advantage for the Cubs hitters and pitchers because they can freely just do their thing. But then when that Cardinals pitcher retaliates, then that puts the Cubs hitters on edge. And now they're coming up to the plate a little more timid and they're not going to so freely lean over the plate to try to bash a ball over the heart of the plate. You know, they've really got to be aware and then if you can make the hitters a little more timid, then they're going to get a little bit farther away from the plate. And then you can dominate that outside corner and really do some damage. And then there's also a section where Tony tells George about why it's so frustrating when umpires issue a warning before a player from each team has been hit. And a lot of it is because of that strategy. So if you ever watch, you know, Sports Center a quick pitch and you see a manager go out there like Joe Girardi and get super pissed and get ejected, or that Terry Collins play when Noah Syndergaard threw behind Chase Utley and immediately threw out Noah because Terry was so pissed because he needed to retaliate against Chase Utley and the Chase Utley was a Dodger, I think, at the point when he slid into that Met and, you know, messed up his knee and sort of basically ended his career. Sorry, I didn't mean to laugh at that, but that's what happened. I think that guy didn't play until like four or five years after that fact. But that's one of the reasons why Terry Collins was so pissed off at the ump because no one needed to. Granted, he threw behind Chase, but he didn't even hit him. He threw behind him. So it was a safe way for Noah Syndergaard to establish dominance over part of the plate. And Noah immediately got ejected. And Terry was so pissed because he said, you've got to let me get mine. And everyone's seen that video because it was a hot mic. The umpire kept saying, my ass is in the jackpot. Terry was like, you're fucking us. It was a really heavy conversation, like three minutes of clear dialogue through a mic that was just a lot of swear words. And like, 
you know, a lot of it seems like how it's covered by the media, that it's just an ego play that Terry and Noah are pissed, so they got to throw with this guy to stick up for their second baseman, which, yes, is very true, but also you've got to be able to pitch inside to instill fear in the hitters. Make him come up there a little timid. Make him hit a little farther away from the plate so the pitcher can establish a dom dominance. So when that ump threw Noah Syndergaard out so quick, that's why Terry was so pissed because he's like, you got to let us get ours. You've got to let us play the game and establish the play and, and you know, instill fear in these hitters. And then plus, yeah, that guy broke my second baseman's leg. And so we've got to do this. So that wasn't just an ego play, and I think a lot of how, you know, the media, whether it's Yahoo News or MLB Network or ESPN, how they cover the unwritten rules specifically to retaliating when pitching inside, I think it's unfair because they're leaving so much strategy out of it. But again, I am for bat flips because nobody does it better than Tim Anderson and Fernando Tatis Jr. I love Fernando Tatis. Outside of Shohei Otani, Tatis is my favorite player. But also, I watched Shohei Otani pitched yesterday. It, or two days ago against the Diamondbacks, and it was in a National League park, so there was no DH. And <laughs> Shohei Otani batted second, and he was the pitcher. And I think that's the first time ever a pitcher in the National League in a National League game with NL rules has been that high up in the lineup. And the first time Otani batted in the first inning, he batted second. He was swinging so damn hard. He looked like Javi Baez up there, but ended up lining a sharp double, driving in a run, and he's such a difference maker. I think he threw five innings, two earned runs. The Angels won the game. I mean, it was a huge deal, but what Otani did is in between innings, after he had gotten, I think, like striking a guy out or getting a guy to fly out, he was walking back to the dugout. He picked up the baseball bat of the player that he just got out and walked it over to the bat boy. Again, because you always hear me talk about Shohei Otani just being a very kind, loving, sweetheart of a baseball player. And I love the way Otani works. And I always like to mention, you know, nice things that Otani does when he's on the mound because you got a guy that throws 98 and he swings and hits a baseball harder than probably anybody in Major League Baseball right now. But he's so kind. And he just, yeah, he picked up this baseball bat of the guy that he just got out and walked it over to the bat boy and said, hey, man, here's the bat. And I'm like, dude, I love Shohei Otani. But Tatis, dude, he's so cool, man. But, oh, shoot, I got another story. So the other story that I'm going to cover, which is in Men at Work, is about Ricky Henderson. So I talked about this on my live stream and on my Instagram. So if you've read it, you're about to hear it again, but you're going to hear it from my voice. So here's the thing. So they're talking about Ricky in the book, and Tom Treblehorn is in the Oakland Athletics organization as well. So George Will talks to Tom Treblehorn about Ricky Henderson, and Tom tells this story about when he coached Ricky Henderson when he was 17 playing single A ball in Boise, Idaho, right? So and again, Ricky's only 17. And at this point, I mean, Ricky's been fast his whole life. Like, he was a phenomenal running back in high school football. He had a ton of football scholarships. He probably could have been a Hall of Fame running back, for all I know. And so what happened is this. Tom Treblehorn is coaching Ricky single A, Ricky 17. Tom Treblehorn lets Ricky run whenever Ricky wants because Ricky's so fast, Ricky can run when Ricky wants, okay? But one day, and that's how it went. Um, Tom said that Ricky always had the green light. Ricky could get on base, and if he felt like he could steal, let him steal. 
because Ricky was so fast and was such a great base runner. He's probably still fast and good for 30 steals at the age of 59 if he got back in the league. Like, I could totally see Ricky getting into, like, a Frontier League independent ball and, you know, batting 280 with a 402 on base and stealing 50 bases. I could see it for sure. But Ricky comes up to Tom one day and he goes, Hey, Tom, can, I, can you teach me the signs? Because I want you to give me signs when I'm on base. And Tom's like, Ricky, what the hell are you talking about? Why would I give you signs? You you know, you you're really good at stealing bases and me giving you signs just is seems like a waste of time. And Ricky goes, Tom, could you please give me the signs? Like teach them to me because I think it's exciting to get signs. Like everybody on the team, Tom, everybody on the team gets signs. I want to get the signs because it's exciting to get signs. Ricky's like, I just want to get on base and you to tell me to steal. And Tom goes, but Ricky, what if you're on base and I give you the not steal sign? He goes, Ricky, if you're on base and I give you the hold sign, I don't want you to steal. But you think I'm wrong. What are you going to do? And Ricky goes, well, hell, I'm probably going to steal. So Tom's like, then why would I give you signs? Because if I give you a stop sign, you're going to steal anyway if you think you can make it. And guess what? You're probably going to make it. And Ricky goes, please just give me the signs. I think it's neat. So here's what happens. So Tom goes, okay, Rick, I'll give you the signs. So Tom teaches Ricky all the signs. He teaches him the uh, hit and run, bunt, um, what, hit and run, bunt, steal, and takeoff. Okay, so those are the signs. Let me list them again because I feel like there was a third or fourth sign in there. But anyway, so Ricky learns the bunt the take, the hit and run, the steal sign, um, and the takeoff sign. Now, a takeoff sign is a sign that erases all signs. So let's say Ricky Henderson's at first, and Tom does not want Ricky to run. So Tom will give Ricky a bunch of signs, and Ricky's looking at him, but then Tom will give Ricky a secret takeoff sign, which takes off and erases all the signs that have previously been given. And that's intended to deke the competition. So when Ricky's looking at Tom and Tom's given a bunch of signs, the other team is like, oh shit, Ricky's about to run or there's about to be a hit and run on or something. So we better be on our toes. But really, because that final takeoff sign erases all previous signs, nothing's really on. And the other team's super on edge, right? So the first game this happens, Ricky gets on base, he's on first base. And he's looking at Tom intently because he wants these signs. So Tom gives him a bunch of signs, but Tom does not want Ricky to steal. So Tom goes through the signs and then does the takeoff sign to erase all the signs. Okay, so pitch comes in. Ricky steals second. Tom's like, what the hell did he do? I told him not to steal. He's like, I don't think Ricky knows the signs. So Ricky gets to second. And Tom goes through a bunch of signs again and then does the takeoff sign because it's first pitch, right? It's the first pitch. Tom doesn't want Ricky to steal right now because he's in a favorable situation with the hitters and the pitch, the hitters and the pitcher, right? So Tom goes through a bunch of signs, doesn't even get close to the steal sign, okay? It's a bunch of signs, ends with the takeoff sign because he wants him to hold at second because he thinks he can score on a single. Fucking Ricky steals third again. At this point, Tom is cracking up, but he's sort of irritated because he's like, Ricky doesn't know the signs. This is frustrating, right? Ricky scores, 
and gets back to the dugout. And Tom looks at him and he goes, Ricky, this is ridiculous. You wanted to learn the signs and it's frustrating because you don't even know the signs. And Ricky looks at Tom and goes, well, hell yeah, I know the signs. You gave me the takeoff sign twice, so I took off both times. And Tom's like, damn it, man. It was the takeoff sign to, like, you know, erase the signs. But all Ricky knew was takeoff, so he took off every time he could. But I thought that was such a funny story because Ricky was such an energetic ball player. Any coach that's ever coached Ricky from junior high, high school on, they always said that Ricky was such a breath of fresh air. When Ricky Henderson was a Yankee for those years, was it three or four years maybe? You know, that was a George Steinbrenner run team and it was super intense. You know, if you play for the Yankees and Steinbrenner, there's a lot of pressure there. But all the guys that were in that clubhouse said Ricky Henderson was their saving grace, that he was the one that kept the mood, you know, very much lighthearted and took so much of the pressure off. And that's who Ricky was as a player. He was just this fun-loving guy. You know, everyone's like, Ricky talks in the third person. He pops his collar. Like, was he like some sort of egomaniac? And the truth is, yeah, he probably was. But he wasn't not nice. Like, he was an ego. He had a huge ego, probably. When he broke Lou Brock's record, he's like, yeah, I'm the best there is, man. You know, he had a little Muhammad Ali in him, but that didn't mean that he wasn't a kind guy, and he very much was. He would help players. He was a team player. You know, when he started playing baseball, Ricky was like, I'm going to be a leadoff hitter because I'm fast. I know that. So Ricky was like, all I want to do is get on base, score runs, and help my team. And most seasons, he wasn't a big home run guy. But like three seasons in his career, he hit over 26 home runs. Like 26 and 26 and 28 might have been the three times he hit that many homers. And hell, some of those seasons, like in 1985 for the Yankees, I think he hit 25 home runs and stole 80 bases. That's a legitimate power-hitting, base-stealing guy. Like I get 40-40 is a pretty impressive season, but Ricky Henderson hitting 28 home runs and stealing nearly 80 bases is completely nuts because if you got a guy that can hit 28 home runs in a season, that's a legitimate power guy, right? He can drive runs in. But with that speed, that's crazy. And his MVP season, which I think was in uh, 92. Jeez, I'm out of breath, man. <laughs> I'm getting so pumped. The His MVP season, I think it was in 92, with the Oakland A's, he did the same thing. 26 homers and like 62 steals. Just absolutely crazy. But either way, dude, Ricky, sweetheart of a guy. And that's just what makes the story so funny because he was just, he wanted to get the signs because it was exciting. He goes, Tom, I think getting the signs is neat and I want you to give me the signs. And he took off when he got the signs. So it's definitely a fun story. All right, everybody. Well, I think that wraps up today's show. The greatest show on dirt. Thank you so much for listening. It's very much appreciated. I love getting to talk baseball, and I love the comments that come in on Instagram. I've had some people email me, tell me they like the podcast, and they're liking the Instagram, so it means a lot. So thank you so much for showing me so much love and taking the time to listen to it. It means a lot. And until next time, I'll talk to you guys soon. Right on. Have a great week. Take care.